faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for this time together tonight. Uh, we ask that by your spirit you would lead us and guide every word, guide every ear, that we would see you. We want to learn of you. We want to know you. We ask that you would increase our faith. And Lord, we praise you for opportunities like this to come and assemble around your word, uh, that we would grow in grace and in the knowledge of your truth. Lord, we pray specifically tonight for um, individuals who are in need of your comfort and in need of understanding with regard to your perfect will and providence, especially Christy tonight, Lord, as um, she looks on the horizon and sees a battle with, with breast cancer. We pray for her and her family, Lord, that you would encourage her and draw her near, help her to know that you are near, Father. And we pray that you would grant her understanding of your word. We also pray for Kendra as she's looking to these new surgeries that are on the horizon, Father. We pray that you would give her courage and boldness, help her not to fear. Um, we also pray for the doctors. We praise you, Lord, that Alyssa, um, the surgery has been a success and how happy she is, Father. We thank you. That's directly answered prayer, and we praise you for that. We thank you for how she ministers in this church house, what she's doing with the young people even now, and how she's singing in the morning worship services, how she desires to serve you. Lord, we thank you for that. Um, that heart is, is only of you. And we also thank you that the Immler's house is, is going to have its insulation finished um, just before winter, Lord. We know that you are, your ways are perfect, your timing is right, and uh, we know that all good things are from you. We also pray for Jane this week. Um, as she is going to have this infusion, we pray for courage for her with whatever would take place, that she would uh, be equipped to share the good news of Christ and for Britt's mom as well um, with whatever's causing these bouts of fatigue and um, whatever, if it's, a, if it's a heart issue or if it's a, some other ailment, Lord, you know what it is. And um, we commit these circumstances to you. We, we ask that you would console her and and give her wisdom and patience uh, with Brit as well. Um, I know that her mom is dear to her, and Lord, we pray that you would comfort even Brit as she uh, 
helps her mother with these different circumstances. Lord, we praise you that you have not left us without a comforter. You have given your people your spirit to teach and lead and guide and equip and to be our advocate. We know that when we pray, our prayers go directly to the throne of grace, even in this hour. We pray for this church, that it would be a beacon of hope and light in this community, that we would see souls saved, that we would see others come to Christ and have hearts changed at the preaching of the gospel. I thank you, Lord, for Zane and the opportunities to go to the abortion clinic. I pray your leading hand upon him and the other members of the team that minister there. Help them not to be discouraged. Help them not to be uh, downcast with the continual barrage of painful comments and actions towards us. And Lord, we just pray that you would save, uh, save at the preaching of your word. Guide us tonight as we look to this truth in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, a little bit of a review as we bring this section to a close. Um, I want to talk a little bit about hermeneutics. You've heard me say this word before. I think it's an important word that you need to be familiar with. It's not going to be the last time that you've heard this. Um, simply put, hermeneutics are the rules or the science of interpretation. It's how we interpret the Bible. They are the rules of interpretation. Um, and when we read the Bible, we keep that hermeneutic through the entirety of Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, Genesis to Revelation, we don't change the way we interpret Scripture. Um, we interpret Scripture in its context. Uh, we interpret Scripture literally, as you would read any other book, with a grammatical, historical hermeneutic, meaning that we interpret Scripture in its context as it was originally intended to be understood, which means and demands that we understand at least a little bit of history. Now, when we come to the book of Revelation, the common practice is to, to change a hermeneutic or to um, abandon the way we interpret Scripture, scripture or, or even uh, somehow impose a new hermeneutic into the text of Revelation. Well, I don't necessarily find that to be helpful at all. I think we should read the Bible as we read it through the rest of Scripture. We don't uh, look at the first days of creation and bring an allegory to that or see that as metaphor. Uh, we interpret the six literal days of creation to be six 24-hour days um, that, that the Lord created everything. And on the seventh literal 24-hour day, He rested. Um, we wouldn't change that or question that. And the same thing comes whenever we get to the book of Revelation. But nonetheless, there are essentially four views of the book of Revelation. And this is just by way of review um, so that we can have a, a right understanding as we bring this section to a close. Because when we come again next week and we look at chapter 4, things are going to change a little bit. And we want to know how to look at the continuing chapters of the book of Revelation. But these four essential main ways of uh, interpretation when it comes to the book of Revelation are, one, the idealist uh, the idealist approach or the idealist interpretation. And the idealist uh, method of interpretation says that the whole book is essentially an idealistic allegory of a, of a battle between good and evil. Um, at the onset, this is quite evident that that's not what the book is talking about. So the idealist uh, understanding is discarded rather quickly. There is the preterist 
view, the preterist view, which means the whole book or at least large portions of the book have been already fulfilled in or around 70 AD. That would be the preterist view. This is, this is predominantly found in reformed circles. We would see the preterist view of the book of Revelation taking the, nearly the entire book of Revelation having been already fulfilled in the year 70 AD. However, when it comes to the return of Jesus Christ, the big question looms, has that already taken place? Of course not. So at least a portion, at least the latter part of the book of Revelation has not come to pass. Um, I teach and I view the book of Revelation from the futurist standpoint, meaning the majority of the book of Revelation is yet to be fulfilled. We talked about this when we opened the book, right? The book falls into essentially a threefold area that the Jesus tells us in Revelation chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, that this is what has been, and what we've been studying in chapters 2 and 3 is what is going on, or the things that are, and what's going to take place after chapter 3 are the things yet to come. So it is, the book falls essentially into three pieces. And there's also the historicist view. Now the reason I'm bringing this to bear is because when we get to the church at Laodicea, the historicists want to say, look, this is the church today. This is what's going on in the church today. And therefore, we need to look at the book of Revelation from a historicist standpoint, meaning that the seven letters are reflective of points throughout history up until this time. Um, the futurist view, however, remains consistent with a biblical hermeneutic, a literal, grammatical, historical interpretation of scripture okay and when the plain sense makes sense any other sense is nonsense have you ever heard that when the plain sense of scripture makes sense any other sense is nonsense now let's review these seven letters to these seven churches the first church was the church at ephesus right the first church was the church at ephesus we find that in revelation chapter 2 it was the loveless church it was the church that was cold and indifferent of the seven churches, five are commanded by our Lord to repent. Two are not. The second church is Smyrna. The church at Smyrna was the persecuted church. It was the church that was going to suffer in the will of God. It was the suffering that was brought about by the permissive will of God upon the church at Smyrna. Then thirdly, the church at Pergamum. This was the church that was compromising with the world. It had the world in one hand, it had the word in the other, and it was compromising with the world. Fourthly, the fourth church is the church at Thyatira. The Thyatiran church was corrupt. It was a corrupt church. Fifth, there was the church at Sardis. Sardis was the church that was a dead church. We looked at the dead church extensively. Uh, we visited the marks of a dead church. And then as we brought our head above water last week, we saw the church at Philadelphia. The church at Philadelphia is the second of the commended churches. And the church at Philadelphia was the faithful church. Um, it was the church that was faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, faithful to the word of God, faithful to the gospel, and faithful to each other. Tonight, as you've heard already in the text that we've read, we come to the church at Laodicea. 
of all the seven churches that are mentioned in these seven letters, the letter to the Laodiceans is probably the most well-known, given its graphic portrayal of what the Lord does in spewing them out of his mouth. Uh, It's very vivid imagery. Um, And he spews them out because of their lukewarmness, their tippid their tippid actions and their, their lukewarm heart. This church is, is content in earthly wealth, personal pursuits, and frankly, it is completely unconverted. There is not a converted soul in this church, aside from maybe the elder, the angel that is delivering this letter. That's what verse 14 says, unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. That, that angel is the messenger, the elder of the church at Laodicea. They are like the people in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, that when Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then Jesus says, I will... Declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness or you who work iniquity. Quite, quite uh, powerful language that Jesus gives to those false professors. Those who profess Christianity but have never been truly converted. Now, several weeks ago in our Sunday school class, I asked you to ha- do some homework. I wanted you to look up the word, the words, it's a hyphenated word, Easy believism. Do you remember that? Do you remember me asking you that in Sunday school? Did anybody look up what easy believism is? <laughs> Britt's like, no, I get, I take away my gold star. Yeah. <laughs> easy believism is. You have a book about easy believism? Wow, cool. Easy believism is the idea. Essentially, I want to say this. The church at Laodicea is the, is the picture of easy believism. It's, it's the church of easy believism. Easy believism is the idea that someone can say they believe in Jesus Christ having never had a change of heart or an attitude change toward sin. In other words, true faith in Christ will always be demonstrated by a changed life. Always. The term easy believism is also associated with those who promote the idea of that all someone has to do is just simply pray this prayer. Maybe you've heard that. You've probably heard that on every televangelist show that you've ever had the unfortunate privilege to watch. Just pray this prayer and repeat after me and you're in. That's easy believism. Um, But this is done usually through manipulation with no true conviction of sin. No real conversion of the heart. No demonstration of lasting change that brings forth spiritual fruit. And this is the church at Laodicea. But I want to talk a little bit about what this region, uh, this city of Laodicea was like. And I want to mention something else, this personal peace and affluence. I was recently reading a book called How Should We Then Live by Francis Schaeffer. Has anybody read anything by Francis Schaeffer? Has anybody ever heard of Francis Schaeffer? Yes, a couple, couple people heard Francis Schaeffer. This book, How Should We Then Live, was an excellent survey of the trajectory of, 
essentially church history from the first century or or the Roman Empire onward and the effects of Christianity upon uh, secular history. But he writes in this book, he, he essentially toes the line of humanism through the entire book and the, the effects of humanism on society. And humanism is man taking to himself that which belongs to God. We see that today. Um, essentially, it's man saying that he is God. And what, when uh, Francis Schaeffer mentions this personal peace and affluence, he says that this comes as a result of abandonment of truth as revealed in the scriptures. It's an abandonment of absolutes. I want to read this paragraph to you. He says, personal peace means just to be left alone, not to be troubled by the troubles of other people, whether across the world or across the city, to live one's life with minimal possibilities of being personally disturbed. Does that sound familiar at all? It's like, hey, look, let me just keep it in my box and you just stay over there and don't bother me. I want my cabin in the woods. Don't touch me. Don't talk to me. You're bothering me, right? This is this personal peace that we see rampant. He was writing this in the 70s. Personal peace means wanting to have my personal life pattern undisturbed in my lifetime, regardless of what the results will be in the lifetime of my children and grandchildren. (laughs) Essentially, it's all about me. I want my personal peace at any cost. Now check this out. What's affluence? Affluence means an overwhelming and ever-increasing prosperity. A life made up of things, things, and more things. A success judged by an ever higher level of material abundance. It's like who's going to win with the most stuff. So we have personal peace. Don't touch me. Don't bother me. And whatever I can get, I want to pile it high so that I win the game. That's what we, that's what we see in the world today. And this was what was going on in the church of Laodicea. Notice this. Laodicea is mentioned six times in the New Testament. It's a very wealthy city. It is so wealthy. Of the seven churches, it is probably the wealthiest city that is mentioned. It stood in an elevated plateau above the Lycus River. There were many highways and byways that ran through and in and out of the city, making it a thoroughfare to the other cities. Colossae was just to the southeast by about 10 miles. There's a letter in the New Testament to the Colossians. It was just about 10 miles south of Laodicea. This city was founded in the first century BC. It became famous for banking, for finance, for wool, for clothing manufacturing, and for medicine, possibly optometry. You'll see why in a moment. Laodicea was famous for the gladiatorial games. We've all heard those uh, stories of what was going on with the gladiators who would literally kill each other and chop each other to pieces. Um, Such things were taking place in the city of Laodicea. An earthquake actually leveled the city of Laodicea in 60 AD, and the wealthy inhabitants refused any imperial funding whatsoever from the Roman Empire to rebuild. This is how proud and how wealthy they were. They literally said to the Roman Empire, we don't need you. We can rebuild ourselves. And they rebuilt their city from their own wealth that they had accrued. Now, you'll find this very interesting. In my research about what Laodicea was like and what it was like during the first century, I found a book written by a man whose name was John P. McRae. And this book was, it's titled, Archaeology in 
archaeology in the church era, and he wrote this book on biblical archaeology, and that, and that book describes modern-day excavations have uncovered a stadium, gymnasiums, two theaters, several churches, and an entire water system. That's very important for you to know to understand this section of Scripture. They found a whole water system that supplied this Laodicean city. The church of Laodicea, that's just the city. Now we're talking about the church at Laodicea, which we find in verse 14. We are right, the letter is going to uh, the church of the Laodiceans. Right. Colossae, the book of Colossians in chapter 4, verse 15, Paul says, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. This is very interesting. Paul was writing to the Colossian church, 10 miles to the southeast of Laodicea, there was a church meeting in this woman's house by the name of Nympha that was probably the beginnings of the Laodicean church. She housed this church. Eventually that church would grow outside of the walls of her own home, probably planted by a man by the name of Epaphras. You've heard him in the New Testament. And following his letter, we have reason to believe that they truly did repent after reading what John sent to them in this seventh letter to the Laodiceans. The church at Laodicea pr produced a bishop by the name of Sagaris. This is very important because in 367 AD, Sagaris was a debater from Laodicea, and he debated so fervently that he actually brought an entire council to the church at Laodicea in 367 AD to determine the canon of Scripture. There, there was a letter that circulated through the Laodiceans called the Letter to the Laodiceans that was written by the Apostle Paul. It ultimately was lost, therefore it was uninspired. But there were big questions that were taking place in the 4th century, and Sagaris was one of these men that went to battle to say, look, this is the canon of Scripture that we have in the New Testament, these 27 books of the New Testament. If you don't believe me, come to Laodicea and we'll talk about it. So this church obviously repented after receiving this letter from John and became a, a healthy church, a vibrant church, in so much that it affects the rest of church history. How interesting is that? This man, Sagaris, went on to be one of the early church fathers, and he was fervent for the authenticity and authority of Scripture. This is the Lord of the Laodicean church who's writing. Notice this. These things, verse 14, saith he saith the Amen. Capital Amen. The faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Well, who's the Amen? Jesus doesn't refer to himself by name in here, in this letter. As with the other letters, he doesn't say this is Jesus writing. He says, I am the Amen. The word Amen means truth. Literally, we've talked about this before. When someone says Amen on a Sunday morning, they're literally saying truth. True. They're agreeing. Or they can say, yes, amen. Truth is the yes. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says, For as many as are the promises of God in him, they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen. He is our truth. Through him is truth. So essentially Jesus is saying, who is writing to you, Laodiceans? It is the truth that is writing to you. He is the faithful one, the true witness. The Lord Jesus Christ is faithful. Galatians 2.20, For I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who gave himself for me. These are powerful words talking about the one who is faithful and true. 
Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. I love that verse because that tells me that Jesus Christ is the one that thought of your faith, gave you your faith, started your faith, and will complete your faith. He doesn't just kick the ball rolling and say, well, good luck. What he has started in you, he will complete it. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the one that is faithful and he is the one that is the true witness. The beginning of the creation of the world. Take your Bibles, keep something in Revelation chapter four. We're gonna be coming back there. Look at Colossians chapter one. This is Jesus who's writing to the church of Laodicea. He is the one that is the beginning of the creation of God. In Colossians chapter one, look at verse 15. He is, this is talking about Jesus. Paul is writing to this church at Colossae, which by the way, was probably closely affiliated with Laodicea. Maybe even the church at Laodicea. Colossians chapter one, verse number 15. Who is, that's Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. You need to hear this right now. You need to know who created everything that you see in the world around you. He created visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. This is king language. This is the kind of language that says Jesus Christ is supreme. He is above all things. Everything is held together by him. Verse 17 says, and he is before all things and by him all things consist. By him, literally all things hold together. Jesus Christ is the one that is holding the world together. You may look at the news and you may get all bent out of shape and sweaty, but Christ is on the throne and he reigns. All things have been made by him and for him. I really don't see any reason for a Christian whatsoever in this world to be, to be worried. I, my God reigns and he is on the throne now. He's created everything for his purposes and he will see, through it, see it through to the end. We don't, we don't serve a weeping Jesus. We don't serve a, a helpless savior. Jesus is victorious. Going back to Revelation chapter four, we need to learn from the Laodicean church. We're gonna pick up the pace a little bit here. In Revelation chapter three, verse 15, Jesus says, I know thy works. Why? Because he's omniscient. He knows everything. There's nothing that can be hidden from him. There are no skeletons in the closet with Jesus. He sees right through us. As with the book of Revelation in the chapter one and two says that his eyes are as a flame of fire. They are like a piercing, penetrating gaze. You can't hide from this king. He says, I know thy works and thou art neither cold or hot. I would that you were cold or hot. I wish that you were one or the other. So then because thou art lukewarm or tipid and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. What vivid language. I want to give you three words that are, are associated with lukewarmness. One is apostate. Two is, we've already mentioned this, affluent, as we'll see in verses six, uh, verse 17, and arrogant. Lukewarmness, the mark of lukewarmness is apostasy, affluence, 
and arrogance. The first one we see here is in verse 15 and 16. I know thy works. He knows that Colossae has cold mountain springs just 10 miles southeast of Laodicea. And Herolopolis was a little bit to the west of Laodicea, and they had hot springs. Right in the middle between Herolopolis and Colossae, you have Laodicea. They have lukewarm water. There was aqueducts that you can still see today, by the way. These aqueducts carried water underground, and when the, by the time the water arrived at Laodicea, it was lukewarm. It was about good for nothing. You had to boil it. It smelled. I mean, everything runs down through the water. Has anybody ever been to New Orleans? No one's ever been to New Orleans? Okay, good. How about Chicago? What does Chicago smell like? <laughs> Do you know why it smells funky? You know, because it's Chicago. No, it, it's, it's got these rivers running through it, right? These rivers are running through it, and they're picking up everything in the city and just letting them float on down the stream. It smells. Times that by the bottom of the Mississippi, the New oh, Orleans. What is it? Well, that's because of a sewage plant. But yeah, it, it, it's, it's a smelly thing. Laodicea was similar to this. There was a river that ran nearby and this water that flowed underground to the city to supply the water. It was rancid and it was lukewarm. And Jesus compares this church to that. There's lukewarmness. There's unconversion. Um, the church at Laodicea was neither cold nor hot. They openly rejected Jesus Christ. They weren't hot. They, didn't, they weren't passionate about the gospel. They weren't filled with zeal. In one sense, they were not good for giving, uh, they were, and not any good for giving like a cold drink of water to somebody that was thirsty. Uh, they made no impact on the world. There was no white, white hot passion for the truth of Christ. They didn't want anything to do with the word of God. Why? Because in verse 17, thou says, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Listen to the arrogance. Listen, listen to the affluence. Look, we have everything we need. We're comfortable. They were saying, look, we have personal peace. We have everything that we want. What do you mean we need something else? Lukewarmness is marked by selfish motives. Lukewarmness looks like a pursuit of selfish desires. Lukewarmness is Selfish aspirations, selfish goals, the leave me alone idea. There's no evangelism in this church. There's no outreach in this church at Laodicea. There's, there's just superficial profession. There's easy believism. There's fake Christians in the church at Laodicea, false uh, converts. And above all, they, they truly had a false view of who Jesus Christ was. They, had a, they were denying the deity of Jesus Christ, which led to an affluent mentality. They, they, Jesus says in verse 17, because thou sayest I'm rich, I'm increased with goods, I have need of nothing. There's the material possessions that were actually in this church. And by the way, dear ones, material possessions only come from God. These things that we have They've been given to us by God. Everything you have in this life has been given to you by a sovereign God. Anything that the church has, has been given to it by an almighty God, the God of the Bible. Therefore, it is for God's glory for which these things must be used. It's for God's glory. The same reason that you're breathing here tonight, the same reason that he's given you the breath of life is for his glory. 
Lukewarmness is marked by comfortability. The Laodiceans were a wealthy church. Uh, you've all met Floyd Reinhardt, right? Floyd's been around here, a dear friend of mine. I, I love Floyd. I'm so thankful for him. He said to me one day, we were sitting at Denny's, and he said to me and another pastor, he said, judgment can come in two ways, through poverty or prosperity. Usually we don't think of judgment being prosperity. But he said that, and I agree with him 100%, judgment can come in the form of poverty or prosperity. Both can be equally damaging to someone that is comfortable like this church at Laodicea. In 1 Timothy 6, 9, Paul writes, but they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish, hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. It's the same thing. Those that desire to be rich and wealthy, those that desire to have all this stuff, those that want to be affluent, it's a dangerous, destructive mindset. It's lazy. It's proud. Look what he says in verse 17. And knowest not. Verse 17, you don't know. You're blind to these things. You knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Wow. This church is saying, look, I've got everything that we, we've got everything that we need. What, what else do we need? And Jesus says, you don't even know that you're blind. You don't even know that you're poor. You don't even know that you're miserable. You know, you know, the old Beatles song, right? I think it's a Beatles song. <laughs> money can't buy you love. Is that a Beatles song or is that? Anyway, money can't buy you love. You, you know, you, I've known some of the most miserable people I've ever met in my life are millionaires. Uh, just because you have a, all the financial resources in the world doesn't mean that you're at peace. The peace that only comes through knowing God. And finally, a lukewarm church is marked by arrogance. They were proud. They don't even know. They don't even know that they're miserable or poor or blind. They, they can't even see it. Pride blinds the hearts from the things of God. And Christ's command to put off the world. Look what he says in verse 18. I counsel thee, this is my counsel, this is my word to you. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich. Well, I mean, anybody that would be reading this is saying, We've already, we're already rich. But Jesus is saying something else. He's making a spiritual application. I want you to see something very closely. You say, why did you take us all through that big giant introduction about Laodicea? Because you needed to know that in order to understand verse 18, because Jesus gives a threefold answer to what was going on historically in Laodicea when he gives them this command. He says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire. They had gold. He says that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed. He's making a comparison and that the shame of thy nakedness does not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. He just made three references to the major exports of this city. This was a wealthy city. It was a, it was a city known for banking and financial prosperity. This was a city that was known for exporting textiles it was known for making clothes, especially wool. And Jesus says that you may be clothed in white raiment so that your nakedness may be covered. There's a spiritual application here. He says the gold that's refined by fire, that's faith. That's the faith that we must have as believers in Jesus Christ. The faith that's given to believers. 
The white raiment is clearly referenced elsewhere in the New Testament as the righteousness of Christ. We should put on the righteousness of Christ as a garment, as a robe. How is, what, what is that symbolic of? Putting on the righteousness of Christ as being having the righteousness of Christ imputed to us by faith in Jesus Christ. And this eye salve is clearly referring to the word of God, the commands of God. Notice what he says in verse, eight, verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Jesus says, be zealous, therefore, and repent. So hear the word. The chastening is a mark of Christian maturity. Chasing, chastening is a, is a mark of Christian maturity. And a mark of Christian maturity is whenever a believer asks the Lord to do whatever he needs to do to make them more like Jesus Christ, regardless of how painful it may be. No matter what, when we plead with God to make me more like your son and rip the sin out of me. When we, when we get to that point in our Christian life where we have zero regard whatsoever for what anybody thinks about us, but only what God thinks about us, then we are walking the, 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 the pathway of Christian maturity. When we get to the point where we can say to God, God, whatever it takes, humble me. If you, if I had a, a, an old friend of mine said, don't ever pray for patience because the Lord will give it to you. And what he was saying was, if you pray for patience, the only thing that cultivates patience is pain. And whenever he takes you through chastening and he takes you through trials, then we learn to be patient. But when we know that we're in the will of God and we can trust him through anything, we say, God, do with me as you will, right? We say, take me through whatever. Take me through the fire. Refine me. Hebrews 12, 5, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto the, uh, you as children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord. Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast to the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is, a, is faithful that has promised. And let us consider one another, this is very important, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another in so much the more as you see the day approaching. Do you not see the day approaching? Should we not be exhorting one another unto love and good works and not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is? This is our call. This is what we've been called to do. Let's exhort one another to love and good works. And I love this when Jesus says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. And, and dear ones, if you've experienced the rebuking and the chastening of God, may you know that this is him showing you that, you, that he loves you. What? I don't know of anything else in the world that is more precious than hearing the words of my Lord tell me that this is what he does to those he loves. This is the mark of what it means to be, to be loved by God, to be led through the fire. And you say, well, that doesn't sound very fair. Oh, we want to talk about fair. Let's think about fair. All you need to think about when you think about the word fair is the cross. Because you don't want fair. Fair is the cross of Calvary. And what's, 
What's, what's necessarily unfair is that a sinless God took your place. And when we think, well, man, I'm just suffering under all this chastening and, and this pain and this rebuking, look to the cross of Christ and see what he took for you. The Son of God endured infinitely more than you ever have or ever will. And he did it in your place. Because why? Because he loves you. This is, this is almost incomprehensible. Now let's get to these last two verses in this study. You've all heard these verses. Maybe you've even sung these verses in Sunday school. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Now, maybe you've heard preachers even saying, Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. You ever hear somebody say that? Can you please tell me where you find that anywhere in this verse? It's nowhere. Jesus is not knocking on the door of your heart saying, please let me in. In the context of this passage of scripture, he is knocking on the door of this particular church and he's knocking on the door of every church that is like Laodicea. He's knocking on the door of these churches that do not want Jesus Christ. Jesus is on the outside. Can you imagine Jesus coming to church on Sunday morning and, and we hear this and we're thinking, who in the world could that be? I mean, is, is Jesus actually on the outside of your church or is he on the inside of your church? Could you imagine being in a church where they just pushed Jesus out completely and they filled it with everything else? They filled it with the world and pragmatism and lights and lasers and smoke shows and all kinds of different things. And Jesus is just kind of out on the outside like, can you let me back into my church? This verse is not talking about Jesus knocking onto the door of your heart saying, let me in. We need to remind ourselves that when Jesus Christ comes to call one of his sheep, he kicks the door down. He comes through the fire to get you. He reaches into the bottom of the barrel to pull you from death unto life. This is clearly in the context of what we're reading here in chapter, in chapter 3, this letter to the Laodicean church. Jesus is knocking on the door of that church. And if there's one faithful individual in this church that will recognize their need for repentance, he says, I'll come in. He says, if, I, if one person in there will recognize their depravity, if one person in this church will see that they need me. I mean, think about that. How badly do you need Jesus Christ right now? You need him. You need him every hour. Jesus says, if, you knock, if, if I'm knocking on the door and one opens to me, I'll come into that church. To him that overcomes, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. This is a very real um, figurative language that Jesus is using that describes the believer sharing in the privilege and authority that Jesus Christ permits to them, those believers, to reign with him. Now, our time is up, but I will have you turn to one more passage, okay? Romans chapter 10. You say, well, listen, I'm not stomaching that, ver that preaching of verse 20, because I've heard this all my life, that Jesus stands at the door of my heart and knocks. 
I want you to look at Romans chapter 10. How is he knocking on the door of this church? Is he literally on the outside on the wood of the church and he's knocking on the church? When Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock, he is knocking with the words of that letter. He is knocking with the word of God. This is how he knocks on the door of a church that has put him out. You can't escape from the word. And in Romans chapter 10, we, we like to, can anybody tell me what verse everybody likes to quote out of Romans chapter 10? Nine. What? Nine. I wasn't thinking nine, I was thinking 13, but yes, nine is a prime example. Let's look, go with nine. Let's look at nine. And you're, I, want, I want you to pay very close attention because the verses that I have written down here are Romans chapter, not, Romans chapter 10 verses 8 through 17. Okay? You say, well, why did you back up to verse 8? Notice what Kevin pointed out in verse 9. Remember, thinking about this easy believism that is rampant in the world today, you've probably heard this. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and shall believe in thine heart that God, and everybody says, they, they cut the verse off right there. And they say, thou shalt be saved. Right? Have you ever heard that? If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. Have you ever heard that? Can you tell me by looking at that, is that the verse? That's not the verse. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You say, well, there's not much variance there, but you've missed the big giant piece of the resurrection. Then look at verse 13. This is the verse that I thought that everybody quotes. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is the jet fuel of easy believism. You say, well, wait a minute. We, can't we just preach that verse? Yes, you can preach that verse in its context. I want you to see something. Look at verse 8. I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but this is very important. Verse 8. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee even in thy mouth and in thy heart. What is, excuse me, that is the word of faith which we preach. What has happened? Verse 9, sequentially, what has happened? You've heard the word that has been preached. It is the word of faith. It has come to rest in your mouth because it is in your heart. There is the word making conversion in a heart of a person. And then notice verse nine. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Why? Because verse eight says that you've heard the word. The word has come to bear in your heart, brought there by the spirit of God. God has illumined your understanding. And then verse nine, you confess with your, your, your mouth. Keep moving. For the, with thy heart, with the heart, man believes. You see how Paul's talking about the heart. How has the heart believed? Because of the word. Unto righteousness and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Paul is talking about sequence. He is talking about how the word penetrates the heart and changes the heart and then salvation takes place. For the scripture says, whosoever believe on him shall not be ashamed. Praise be to God for that. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be, shall be saved. Praise be to God. Verse 14, keep going. 
How then shall they call on him in whom they have not heard? Or who have they not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who has believed our report? This is very important. Verse 17 brings the cherry on the top. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the what? The word of God. There must be a conversion that takes place by the spirit of God, bringing the preaching of God from the ear to the heart. If we simply stand up on a Sunday morning and say, now all you got to do is just pray this prayer after me. You're going to fill the church with unconverted people. I'm not saying that people haven't been saved after the preaching of the word and then a pastor leading them to pray a prayer. I'm not saying that that hasn't transpired. But what I am saying is if you try to get someone to do something just by praying a prayer and then say, don't worry, you're in, never doubt it, and I'll sign the back of your Bible, and they've never experienced lasting the conversion that comes as a result of the word of God in the heart of a man, then you've just found easy believism. You've just told somebody that they're converted when they're really not which I don't know of a more damaging thing to somebody. Because 25, down, 25 years down the road, they're wrestling with the idea if they've ever been converted, they're trusting in something, in the prayer that they prayed whenever they were seven years old, and there's never been a lasting conversion or a lasting change. It's almost as if we're like the Laodicean church. We just say, well, it doesn't really matter anyway. All I want is my personal peace. All I want is to get what I can get until it's all over. So this church of Laodicea, we have a lot to learn from them. We have a lot that we can use to glean from this church at Laodicea. What a fearful thought it could be to be an, a lukewarm church. There are, there are lukewarm churches everywhere. Hundreds of thousands of lukewarm churches speckling uh, the landscape of our day. Any questions or thoughts or comments before we close tonight? I'm here. Like, it took me three weeks to finally slow down. And I am a, my best friend is Christopher.